From DLA Piper, this is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, DLA Piper's Chief Operating Officer, Bob Bratt, and Chief Administrative Officer, Joanne Chiedi, are joined by Community Leader, Bill Koneko, to discuss their work with the Office of Redress Administration. This historic government program issued redress payments and a presidential apology to individuals of Japanese ancestry evacuated, relocated, and interned during World War II. Welcome. I'm Joanne Chiedi, and I'm here with Bob Bratt and Bill Koneko to reflect on a federal program created by legislation in 1988, the Office of Redress Administration in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. The Redress Office was charged with administering a 10-year program to provide restitution to eligible men, women, and children of Japanese ancestry who lost liberty or property during World War II when Executive 9066 was issued by Franklin D. Roosevelt on February 19, 1942. The executive order stated that no one of Japanese ancestry could be allowed to remain on the West Coast of the United States during its war with Japan. The $1.6 billion program issued a $20,000 symbolic redress payment and a presidential apology to over 82,000 eligible recipients. Bob, Bill, and I will share our vantage point of what it was like to be part of this historic government program. Bill is a community leader who led the fight in Hawaii to seek redress and was a past president of the Japanese American Citizens League. Bob was a redress administrator, and I served as the deputy administrator. So, Bob, I thought you could kick us off and tell us about your approach to leading this program. There wasn't a playbook to go by. This was just a very unique mission, first of its kind. Thank you, Joanne. So first and foremost, my second cousin had married a Japanese American that had been interned. So throughout when I was knee high, I had heard stories about the internment and all. When the legislation was being considered and I started doing some more research and some more reading and then learned that the Department of Justice was going to be administrating, I really started to dig in a little bit about it. The uniqueness of it was that the federal government was to identify, locate, and verify individuals. So the easy part, well, somewhat easy part for 95% of the people was the identification process because the federal government had kept the paper records that they had way back in the internment camps, and they were just literally across the street from the Department of Justice at the National Archives, and we got them out of there. So that was the easy part. We knew the addresses, most of them wouldn't be any good. And then to verify that we had the right people that we were looking at is really where all of a sudden we realized most critically, this program was not going to be able to put out an application that everybody could fill out. We were told that the impetus was on the Department of Justice for us to do it. So that really kicked off in my mind as soon as we knew what we were up against was the involvement of the community. And it started with Iko Hertzi. I drove over to her apartment and sat there and talked to her for two or three hours. The biggest group out there was the Japanese American Citizens League. And then my now brother, Bill, and I met him and the others in the group. And that really kicked it off. Well, Bob, I think your personal approach 
really set the tone and tenor for all of us in the program. This was a program that you certainly could not accomplish from afar. And when you think back, the Department of Justice was in charge of carrying out those orders. And the same Department of Justice were then, 40 years from then, knocking on these individual doors, telling them to trust us that we were in charge of the redress program. And I just don't think it's success would have been the way it was without you really getting to know the individuals, the history, and just going out and meeting people and gaining their trust. And I think that's, again, how you met Bill, because Bill, you certainly had involvement in the redress program even before we knew about the redress program. So knowing that the government basically was in charge of this executive order. Did you have any concerns about how we were going to go about finding, identifying these individuals, making restitution? Just tell us about what that looked like in the early days. Yeah, thanks, Joanne, and aloha, Bob. Yes, we had definitely significant concerns. And to your point, 40 years prior, it was the government that interned an entire community on the West Coast and Hawaii. So fast forward, when the redress bill was passed, again, it was in the hands of the government. So our community was in an interesting position where the fate and future of redress was back to the government. But I think to your point, Joanne, what was really key, and Bob alluded to the fact that the relationships that were developed between the Office of Redress Administration and the various Japanese-American community organizations was key. And it was a very masterful strategy to be able to work with organizations like the Japanese-American Citizens League, the National Coalition of Redress and Reparations, churches, Japanese-American clubs, really, because we were the conduit. And by doing so and having that personal touch that both you and Bob had in actually developing that kind of trust and relationship with community leaders was very important. What really amazed me early on when we met Bob shortly after the act was passed in 1988, he came down to Hawaii in 89 And we sat down and we had a conversation and we got to know each other in the same way that Bob did with Eiko Herzig and hundreds of other Japanese-American community leaders in really getting to know them, understanding the community, being familiar with what it's going to take to reach out to tens of thousands of Japanese-Americans. And it's really this kind of personal touch that the government had and developed with the community, which is extremely rare, extremely rare, because the tendency for government, as you know, is that it's a very sterile process and you're filling out forms and they'll get back to you and you don't hear from them. Not so with the Office of Redress Administration. And I think, frankly, that kind of personal touch, personal leadership style made the program very, very successful. Bill, you and I sat down certainly in the beginning and have had a dialogue every year, ever since then, just about it seems like sometimes it's longer apart than all, but certainly in the early years, we were talking on a weekly basis. 
Then Joanne and other folks joined our office. And I did try to set the tone for the office. But we needed to be partners with you for a number of reasons. First of all, anybody that read and learned about what happened, it tugged at their heart. Secondly, the government paid five to 10 cents on the dollar. So first we get interned. Then the next thing from the government is that they pay very little for their property. And so this, to me, was the third bite at the apple. And we had to work closely and gain the trust of everybody. And the last thing I'll say is there's so much I didn't know and we didn't know. And I think back to those very early days. And one of the key reasons to be involved with the community was to learn more about the story. And as you know, we kept adding people for eligibility and the stories just coming out of the woodwork. I remember being so nervous about the first checks going astray and being sent to the wrong people and our verification not being enough. And, oh, my gosh, we're going to have a congressional inquiry and all this stuff. So it really felt like we needed to be very, very close to the community. Yeah, I think back in those days and we literally walked down to the Department of Treasury. We picked up 25,000 checks. We worked off of a nine millimeter magnetic tape. Some folks listening to this won't know what that looks like, but it looks like an old LP, what your parents used to listen to. Called the uh, office on a payphone. <laughs> yes, they called the way. office on the telephone. We had a bilingual hotline and we sat there and we would stuff checks and apology letters. And we were worried about someone applying for redress who was not eligible, trying to scam the system. We had attorneys who were trying to have Japanese Americans represent them when there was no need, trying to make money off the program. And Bob was smart enough to have our payments audited. We threw our own names in there to make sure that they wouldn't get through. (laughs) I mean, those were our internal controls. We had to be extremely, extremely careful because, again, this was the first program ever. And if people lost confidence in us, we would lose that control of cultivating that trust, empowering not only the staff, but the people who were impacted helped us find other people. This wasn't just the government leading the way. It was a true, true partnership that improved the lives of thousands of people. I just remember different generations learning for the first time that their grandparents or parents were in turn. And that's the first time they shared that story. So to me, it was incredibly moving program. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is a passion. There is a passion for righting a wrong. There was a zeal to do the best job they could on behalf of the government. And I think in part that was developed by listening and learning about the stories and how it impacted not only individual lives, but an entire community. And they took that passion, and that was really transpired in the highest level of commitment and service on behalf of the government. And it really, to this day, impresses me to hear and to have witnessed that as the program began to unfold, the kind of commitment and going the extra mile that not only Bob and Joanne, but the entire staff exhibited at ORA. I mean, Bob and Joanne as the top two senior executives at ORA, 
were taking telephone calls from individual applicants answering questions. And that was done throughout the staff. But it's that kind of commitment and passion that really drove it. And that all comes from the top. The leadership, like Bob and Joanne, they set the tone. And because they did, that became the norm. And again, the results were an extremely successful government program. Well, let's not forget, Bill, that very reciprocal, you and others, I remember hitting the road and we would do workshop after workshop in different places. But once everyone was comfortable with each other, then we all went out and had dinner together and ate and drank together. So it was totally a two-way street the way our interaction was. And I remember saying this to you, Bill. I remember saying this to you way back when you were just going to law school. Now you're a veteran lawyer here in Hawaii. But I was saying we're going to be friends for life. And that was never truer words. (laughs) Well, Bill, I think the only mission we failed was to get Bob to move away from cheeseburgers and try a little sushi. (laughs) (laughs) Never going to (laughs) happen. We were just so lucky. I mean, think about it. All the stars align. We have the right people at the right time in the right places, all working together, hand in glove, shoulder to shoulder. Focus on a mission. I think people stop using that word mission. But Mm -hmm. I just remember it flowing from your mouth, Bill, Bob, again, the community, we all work together. That's why this program has such an impact, I think, on all of us of how we lead people, how we listen, and a lot of what's even going on today. I mean, it has a real life impact. If you go way back in time, I'm going back to you hitting the payphone. I think one of the most critical things we could talk about, though, is The tools available to us in 1988 to administer this program versus here we are in 2021. There was no Google. The Internet was at its infancy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to the verification and what we did in our partnership with the community was simply, if you remember way back, Joanne, what we had to do to verify people was we had to manually go to the state of California and some of the other West Coast states and the state of Hawaii and get tape runs of their driver's licenses. So then we could match up dates of birth and whatever information we had with those tapes to try to get current addresses. So it wasn't like you could go on Facebook. There was no Facebook, there was no this, and there was no that. But if you think back to it, it was a very rudimentary way of trying to verify it. Yeah, so I mean, that partnership with the community, I think what Bob was alluding to is that Hawaii had what we called unique cases. There were two internment camps in Hawaii, one at San Island, the other at Honolulu, Uli, where about 2,000 Japanese Americans were interned. But there are 23 affected sites where about 2,000 Japanese Americans were not interned, but evacuated from their homes. And we would have never came across that and moved this along if it weren't with working collectively with the government. Because to Bob's point, working with the community, we found out where these sites were. And in total, there are, as I mentioned, 23 impacted sites located next to Pearl Harbor, next to a military battery, next to a military airfield. 
And it's only with working with the community that all of this became uncovered. And that's where the community came in, in really uncovering this and identifying where all these individuals lived. The research that was done leading up to enact the law, I think really was looking at the bigger picture. And as we kept peeling back the onion in these community workshops, we bump into more and more things, whether in Hawaii or other places. I remember one of the last things was we were looking at folks from Latin America. We had heard about the Canadian Redress. Actually, the law firm that is part of our law firm right now actually worked on the Canadian Japanese. So there was all of a sudden all these pockets of stories that weren't apparent when they first were looking at and wrote the law. The bulk of the people we had, but there was a lot more that got added. And the second thing, we were trying to understand what happened. Does it fit within the vein of the legislation and looking at the legislative history and all the research that was done? And there were a number of folks that redress and what we were doing, they didn't think were appropriate. We did run into that sometime at workshops. Yes. (laughs) I think we ran into a little bit of everything. And that's why, I mean, our Google was leaving Washington, getting on a plane and just getting into the community, because that's how we did learn these individual and unique cases. And one I remember, when I think it was in Hawaii, was the All-American Army Unit, the 442nd, the combat unit, second generation Japanese Americans fighting in the war while their family and relatives were basically forced to relocate in internment camps. And I remember this one gentleman You always wanted to find a nexus. People just didn't assume, oh, I'm eligible. So you ask certain questions. And I remember talking to this one gentleman and just asking, well, did you lose property? Were you forced to relocate before basically going into the war? So he started telling me, I did actually, I lost my home because I wasn't able to get back to the West Coast. Even at this time, the humility and just talking to these individuals, their spirit, their love for America never waned just because of the forced relocation and the loss of liberty. It was palatable when you talk to these individuals, as well as the Japanese Peruvians taken out of their country and a prisoner of war exchange program with Japan, which really didn't happen. It just was so daunting and so interesting, particularly when it was a hard case. We used to call those special verifications. And you really needed to dig into the story to determine what happened to them 40 years ago. And you're depending on people's memories. Yeah. It was interesting, fascinating. There was one gentleman, I remember in Hawaii, Bill, that was in Pearl Harbor at the time of the bombing. Mm-hmm. He left, got on a boat, came to the United States, went across the United States, went to Europe, went across Europe, and he relocated back to Japan. And he was from Hiroshima. And then when he came to the workshop and we researched it and all, and because of the various nuances of the law, he was not eligible. So Mm. he had been there at the very beginning of the war. He had been there at the very end of the war. And somewhere in one of my folders at home here, I wrote down these stories all over, but there was all kinds of folks. Yeah, and I think, as you can see, for ORA, every case was special. And some cases would impact hundreds of individuals. But the attention to detail and the responsiveness, whether it's one person, one family, or one community, everybody got the highest level of research, analysis, as well as scrutiny. 
because ORA couldn't just hand out checks because they were part of the evacuation and internment. The facts had to fit the law. And that kind of due diligence, whether persons were granted redress or not, was all part of their process. I wanted to bring up one point, too, in terms of why I think ORA really set the standard for a government program was really the agency's ability to make decisions quickly. And I think that really was very important because it showed the community that the government was listening and responsive, but it really broke the mold in terms of how government works and operates. Generally, you hear this over and over, whether it's applying for something with the government, waiting and not hearing. When there was a request from the community, ORA would react very expeditiously and quickly. What set the department apart from a typical government agency was its ability to act quickly and make decisions expeditiously. And that was important for a couple of reasons. I think first it showed the community that the government was listening and it was responsive. The typical government agency experience more often, unfortunately than not, is that you apply for a program, it takes a while, you don't hear from them, and there's constant droning of waiting. And that's not true for all government agencies, but a lot. But for ORA, when something came up, they acted quickly. And the second thing was that it really set the tone for the program itself. I remember when the whole issue of the Hawaii evacuation came up, when Pam Funai found the smoking gun, the document that said that Japanese Americans living in areas near military bases were to be evacuated, but they were not interned. I mean, within two weeks, Bob sent down a team of researchers to call through the University of Hawaii archives, various government agencies that had records as to what happened during the war. And those are very rapid kinds of decisions that took place, which ultimately led to a very, very thorough and comprehensive investigation on what happened. But that kind of responsiveness, you can't get anywhere, including corporate America. So again, it really does come down to leadership and approach, which really set the tone for the program itself. Yeah, we remember, I'm going back to where we started, and that is the government was tasked to identify locate and verify the individuals. And I always come back to that because that's a unique government program. It's unlike anything else, every other government program you apply to. So it was our responsibility to interpret what we learned and make sure we learned everything we could. Again, you couldn't, here you go, fill out this application. I double-hatted jobs at that point. My office of redress job was on top of being the executive officer in the civil rights division. So as executive officer of the civil rights division, I had I don't remember how many hundreds of people working for me that were all support people. And as a senior non-lawyer in the Department of Justice, where I'd been for a number of years at that point, I knew everybody if we needed to get somebody to help us with this, that, or the other thing. So we could get the existing staff to help us out a lot of times to get things done. 
and I was assistant director of budget, I could get down to budget and ask him a question and get an immediate answer. And then the other thing was I had great staff. My staff at DOJ was one of the best always, people like Joanne and others. And so between having a really good working group and being in a position to do it, it made it look easier than it was to other government agencies. Well, I think there was just such a love for the mission. No one wanted an individual who was harmed to pass away before receiving that presidential apology and that symbolic redress check. Because you'd listen to all these stories, over 200 workshops across the country. It became personal for these individuals and for us to do our job as accurately as possible, because that was number one, because no one wanted a check and an apology letter to go to the wrong individual, not the community, not us. So getting it right was so critical and spending all that time in the libraries, the National Archives. I mean, we're spending 16 hours a day in a National Archives, sifting through boxes and boxes and boxes of information because you don't want to miss that smoking gun. And just the feeling that they were right, the wrong that was committed, that level of responsibility and burden we felt every day going to work. And that was Bob's leadership as well. I know, Bob, that you have a lot of humility. You don't like talking about it, but you let this charge. And still today, my decisions, and when I look at something, I think about that program and I think about you and how you really set the tone and the tenor for all of us to follow, even the community. Just a cog in the wheel. But if there's one thing I did, Joanne, I think was build great teams. I mean, we're working together again and we have a great team here and we had one back then. And it's so much easier when most critical thing is everyone needs to get along and support each other and understand and work together that I always look for a whole bunch of people that just really first and foremost function as a team, not as an individual. And that's what we did back then. And that's what we do today. So it's Mm -hmm. a key attribute of a successful team always been with me. Hey, Bill, can you tell us about the project that you're working on? Haven't you put pen to paper about this time in history? Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking, Joanne. Actually, when I was working with Joanne and Bob on the redress cases, that was actually pre-law school for me. I was working 10 years before going to law school and Went to Catholic University in Washington, D.C., and as part of one of my courses, I wrote about the evacuation of Japanese Americans in Hawaii. And those were persons, as I mentioned before, who were not interned, but were evacuated. Some 2,000 in 23 geographic areas throughout the state. And those are unique cases because... It wasn't as though they could go down a roster and say, okay, you are in San Island or Honoulu'uli or shipped off to the other 11 internment camps throughout the country. These are people at gunpoint the day after Pearl Harbor asked if they're Japanese Americans and basically kicked out of their homes. That's it. Nowhere to go. Some lived in garages, went to family members. I remember one person that we interviewed in Maui and they lived in a chicken coop that they had transformed into a small place where he was living. But the law was broad enough because part of the criteria was a deprivation of civil liberties. 
And clearly, if you are living somewhere and kicked out of your house, you were deprived of your civil liberties and the ORA had determined that they would be eligible for redress. So it was this very tiny sliver of cases in Hawaii. But long story short, I started writing about it 25 years ago in law school. And I'm at the final stages of it being done. I put the last edits a couple of weeks ago, and it's going to go to the copy editor. But what this book seeks to do is chronicle the story of persons evacuated from their homes, but also the case of how it went through working with the Office of Redress Administration. Some of the cases actually were denied initially, and we took it on appeal to the appellate division of the Department of Justice and how we went through that. And ultimately, David Flynn, who is the chief of the appellate division, said that, yes, in fact, if you were evacuated in certain areas, that you would be eligible for redress. So the story of the internees of the 110,000 persons have been told, but it's really a unique sliver of Hawaii's history that will add to the body of knowledge that has been written about. So that's my project. <laughs> Congratulations. I do have one more thing to bring up, and that was sometimes we, once in a blue moon, used to have fun. And I did mention <laughs> going out to dinner and going out and certainly having beers after workshops when we could with everybody. But one Friday afternoon when we were in Hawaii, Bill, as the story goes, this famous story, Joanne and I snuck off for an afternoon to go up to Waimea Bay to go swimming for the afternoon and do some body surfing. And we got up there and the waves were huge. They were 10 or 15 feet. And we both, Joanne and I, got clobbered by this wave. And I finally swam up to the top and then I couldn't find Joanne. And I literally started reaching around him and I grabbed her by her hair, pulled her up to the top. And then finally, we got out of the shore and I said, oh, my God, was that something unbelievable? And Jermaine looks at me and says, oh, well, thank you so much. I said, God, I was really worried. And she goes, I was really worried, too. And I said, yeah, I was really worried. I didn't know what I was going to tell my boss if something happened. <laughs> 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 that story goes on in infamy. That was the one afternoon we were goofing off. And here I was, something would have happened to Joanne. So I wanted to make sure that got to the record today. But you know what, though? A lot of fun, but a lot of work. And the due diligence was incredible. I mean, we had to look not only at the research in the archives, but Right, Bob? We have to look for Japanese-Americans on the golf course. Yes, exactly. We have to look for them in restaurants. We have to scan the beaches to make sure that we didn't miss anybody. We really, really did an incredible job together. (laughs) Work hard, have fun. (laughs) That was a spirit. We really worked hard, but you also needed to blow off some steam because it was just so emotionally charged. That whole program wasn't, you just get out of bed and you look at a piece of paper and you just go throughout your day. I mean, each day you had to bring your game. So we did appreciate those times. (laughs) It was the only time that Bob led me astray. I was wondering, (laughs) is this smart? Everybody has a boogie board or Mm. surfboard. (laughs) And here we are, two bureaucrats from D.C. in the water. But how we're talking today, 20 years later, is how it was then. 
And it's oh, that yeah. kind of teamwork that Bob and you talk about that Esprit de Corps really makes for really high quality teams and achievements. Yeah. We never sure lost it, right? Never did. No, all these no. years. <laughs> no. We no. And all. We're still young at heart, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you guys have any parting words before we end the show here? Bill, why don't you go? Well, for me, having really the treasure of working with both Bob and Joanne has impacted my life, really, not only as a person, but professionally. And just watching and being part of what I think was one of the most successful programs in our nation's history and being part of that and really seeing how government can work and how the people behind that think and feel and operate and work together, as well as making mistakes and correcting them. It was an incredible learning experience. So we were all younger then, but that has impacted me in terms of how I conduct myself, how I look at things professionally at work as a lawyer, but also as a community member in terms of the kind of passion and dedication, a commitment to quality service that you had at ORA has really instilled the highest level of behavior for me. So it has really changed my life for the better because I know what it is and what it takes to be the best. And you guys are the best. So I really thank both of you for the opportunity to not only work with you, but to be your friends after all these years. Oh, well, I'll speak for Joanne, but the feeling is so mutual, Bill. You've been an incredible friend from day one. We never ever had to worry that you didn't have our backs covered and you told it to us straight in times that you had to tell us tough stuff too. And not every time you pat each other on the back. I think I feel so incredibly fortunate to have been in a place and time where I got to work on this incredible program and meet so many incredible people. The Japanese American community for me will never ever leave my heart. I mean, I spent so much time with you, Bill, with quality people. Every time, it's just an incredible bond that I've had with folks. I hear from folks all the time still to this day. So it was something to really work on. And then the staff here at the firm, I mentioned great staff here. Everybody works together. Good things happen when that happens. And luckily, the tone was set. But it takes the tone being set and people wanting to buy in and trust the, their leaders, too get us all and get things done to the right place, which luckily I had a great group of justice that did too. And lastly, Joanne, who was a paralegal in the employment section when I said, let me give her a shot. I've heard good things about her. I meet her and she's a character and full of energy. And Joanne, thank you for stepping up. And once Mr. Muller pulled me out to go work with him and left you guys in redress, you carried on the way I had hoped you would. So thank you. Thanks, you too. I mean, how lucky am I? You certainly can't predict the future, but you can help shape it. And I think you help shape it by the people you surround yourself with and how you conduct yourself. And by no means am I perfect, but if you try to do good and the right things, you'll go down the right path. And I think in public service, 
if you ever lose sight who you're serving, and that's the public, and that they should always be in your line of vision, then you start going astray. But when you're surrounded by people like you, Bob, and Bill, who provide people like myself so much energy, I feed off of that. And it was just such a pleasure. That program changed my life. People that I talk to, people that I lead, tell me. When I start talking about the redress program, I start welling up inside because there's just so much you can learn from it. And it has guided my decisions in my life, my public service, and now with the firm that Bob has brought me to, which is extremely exciting. But you can't lose sight of your mission and who you're serving. And when you do that, then you've lost something. And for all those youngins out there, I would just say this, with Twitter, with email, with texting, once in a while, pick up the phone and have a conversation with Mm -hmm. someone. Develop those relationships, because if you don't, you're really missing out on something. And that's certainly something that I've learned. So with that, you guys, I just love that. What are we going to do next week? (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for this time together. It's always a pleasure to be with all of you. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. <laughs>